I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Ladybirds, parasitoid wasps, nematodes, fungi. If you're looking for a sustainable way to control pests in your garden, this is the show for you as we're delving into the weird and wonderful world of biological control. Biocontrol, it's a phrase we hear a lot, but what does it actually mean? It's the control of one organism by another organism. Meet Andy Salisbury, the RHS's principal entomologist. He will be exploring the fascinating history of biocontrol, looking at how it transformed certain trades and made gardeners' lives easier. RHS scientist Magdalena Boschoff will be getting to grips with using nematodes in our gardens. What are they? How do they work? And how can we use them to control pests? And Eugenia Bone, food and nature writer, is taking us underground as she digs into fungi's potential as a biocontrol. I'm Guy Barter and welcome to Gardening with the RHS. The biological controls available to us home gardeners are either predators or what are rather terrifyingly called pathogenic nematodes. Over to RHS scientist Magdalena Boschoff who can explain all. So the word nematode is from Greek origin and nema means Thread and out means resembling. So it's a thread-like unsegmented worm with a cylindrical body. And within the film nematoda, you have a diverse group of nematodes all within a different functional grouping. So they're grouped depending on where they feed. So first off, you will have your microbivorous species. They feed on fungi and bacteria. And they are super abundant and they can be found in almost any habitat on Earth that you can think of. From the ocean to inside a cave to soil in the Arctic, in a desert, they are everywhere. And they play a very important role in soil health. Then you have your predatory species it's a nematode that feeds on other nematodes and usually within its mouth it has a little tooth. Then you have your plant parasitic nematodes and they cause a lot of economic losses in crop production. For example, you have your potato cyst nematode, you have your root knot nematodes, that's quite a big problem in the UK. They can feed ectoparasitically on the side of roots or on the root tip. But some foliar species can enter the plant through the leaf stomata. So they are very, very small so that they can move in between and through plant cells to set up a feeding site. 
and they also have something special called a stylet. And the stylet is like a combination of a needle and a straw. So it punctures the plant cell and then sucks out the content. Then you have your human and animal parasitic nematodes. And they are usually larger in size. But within this group is then the biocontrol nematodes and the ones we are talking about today. What makes the biocontrol nematode so special is that they carry a symbiotic bacteria in their gut, which is something that none of the other nematode functional groups have. Your biocontrol nematode will arrive in a package in a dormant state, so it's paused its life cycle. And once you mix it with water, they are activated. You apply them to soil and they move in the direction of an insect based on chemical cues that they pick up. I compare them to a little shuttle bus that carry a bacteria into the body of an insect host. When they reach the host, they will penetrate through natural body openings. It could be the anus, it could be spiracles or the breathing tubes of an insect through the mouth. And particularly for slugs, they enter at the posterior part of the mantle, which is just behind the head of the slug. Once inside, they release enzymes that softens the insect's tissue. And as they start feeding, they excrete this bacteria that they carry in their gut. And the bacteria, they produce toxins, but also molecules that suppresses the host insect's immune system. The nematode, together with the bacteria, ultimately causes the death of the insect. Once the insect host has died, the nematodes will continue feeding on the dead cadaver and once the host insect is totally, there's nothing left, they will leave and move to a next host to infest. The first step a gardener should do is understand the life cycle of the insect they want to target. So if you, for example, want to control vine weevil grubs, you need to target the young grubs that has just hatched from the eggs. So you want to target that most sensitive life stage. You also need to take into account the environmental temperature. So each nematode works best within a certain temperature range. So below 5 degrees and above 35 degrees Celsius, they are not active. So it's usually between 12 and 20 degrees. So you need to order your nematodes within that time frame. And you need to buy them from a reputable uh, supplier. When they arrive, you can order it online. And when they arrive, open the box and just check the expiry date. And also if the color of the nematodes are even throughout. Store them in the fridge to use when you need. And the day when you decide to apply, best apply later in the day when there's no direct sunlight. And first water the area. Then you mix your nematodes within a watering can and apply. And once you've applied, once again, water well, just to make sure that these nematodes move deeper into the soil to reach the insects you want to target. 
After you've applied, it's better to reapply every two to four weeks. Studies have shown that reapplication um, shows the best results. I'm a big fan of nematodes. I use them quite often to control slugs. Unfortunately, they don't attack snails, but as a control for slugs, they're very, very useful. And unlike pellets, there's nothing for other organisms to eat. So although pellets are reasonably safe, nematodes are even safer. I also use the mixed nematodes that are sold for use on vegetables and water them on to control the cabbage root fly and also to have a go at controlling the mealybug, which is a, a major problem in the UK. Our team at Wisley reckoned they had some effect on the mealybug, but as yet I'm not convinced. Still, there's plenty of time to do more experiments. I've got an endless supply of mealybugs. Compared to insecticides, biocontrols do much less harm to the environment. They leave no residues. They don't harm non-target insects for the most part. And they are sustainable being able to be produced without using chemicals and non-renewable resources. But how did we discover the potential of these small yet powerful garden allies? Wisley entomologist Andy Salisbury is fascinated by the history of how biocontrols have been used on a large scale around the world. Biocontrol actually has a really long history. I mean, there is evidence that thousands of years ago ants' nests were being moved around in orchards to help control some of the pests in citrus groves and orchard groves throughout the world. But modern biocontrol, certainly on a national scale, it probably really started or kicked off again in the late 1800s. At that time, the citrus industry in California, which we all know well, orange, a lot of orange juice in the world does come from, still come from California, was just starting off. But they got a problem. Known over there as, uh, in the States as a cottony cushion scale, we know it as fluted scale in the UK. This scale insect sucks the sap out of citrus trees and this really took off. It had no natural enemies. It was beginning to kill the trees. So this fledgling industry almost failed before it had really got going. They commissioned an entomologist who went to Australia and he found a ladybird known as the elder ladybird and a parasitoid wasp that will feed on this scale insect, took them over to California, released them. And within a few years, the scale population had been controlled and the Californian citrus industry was saved. People saw that and thought, this is brilliant. We can use it to do other things around the world. And it's not just insects it was used for. Another sort of famous example, this time it was Australia with the problem. This was in the early part of the 20th century. A cactus called prickly pear, which is native to southern North America and Central America, had become a problem in Australia and it was taking over vast tracts of land which would be ideally used for cattle grazing and the cattle wouldn't eat it. What they did is they found a moth called Cactoblastis. The caterpillars would eat the cactus and destroy it. And they introduced that from uh, Mexico. And quite quickly, it did eat all this uh, cactus and, and save it. The Cactoblastis moth is one of the few insects in the world which actually has a memorial to it. And that can be found in Dolby in Australia. But then, you know, these national schemes didn't always quite go to plan. Now, going back to Australia, and this time, 1930s, sugar cane was being grown, cane beetles becoming a problem, and uh, Australians looked around the world and thought, ah, cane toads, they eat cane beetles, let's introduce them to Australia. Not a great deal of testing was done, 
they introduced the cane toad and it wasn't very good at eating the beetles, but it was quite good at breeding and eating native wildlife. And the cane toad is now a major problem throughout large parts of Australia. Now, Australians do really dislike the cane toad. Jumping more to the modern era, and what happens these days with these national programs of biological control? They take years to develop, and there is an awful lot of testing that goes on. A good example in the UK of what's been done is trying to control Japanese knotweed with natural enemies. And throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s, so a good 10, 15 years of work, 200 organisms were tested to try and control Japanese knotweed. Almost all of them were rejected because they could potentially affect our native plants or our native wildlife or get out of hand or not have any effect on the plant. And it came down to two organisms. One was a fungus and one was an insect closely related to the aphids, also known as the psyllid, which would only feed on Japanese knotweed. And that was released about 10 years ago. Still being monitored. We're still waiting to see whether it will begin to control Japanese knotweed. But to ensure that it wouldn't affect our native wildlife, it did take 15 years of laboratory research, government approvals, consultation before it could be introduced. And that is what we do these days to avoid the problems such as the cane toad. Andy's going to continue his biocontrol history lesson later in the show as he explores how and when home gardeners started making the most of biocontrols here in the UK. But I'm especially intrigued by what Andy said about a fungus being trialled as a biocontrol for Japanese knotweed, because I imagine many gardeners are used to thinking of fungi as pests rather than the solution. I don't know too much about using fungi to get rid of pests, so I called up American food and nature writer Eugenia Bone. Eugenia was featured on Netflix's recent documentary, Fantastic Fungi, and has written various books, including Mycophilia, Revelations into the Weird World of Mushrooms. I am an enthusiastic wild food eater, hunter, forager, gatherer, but my favourite critter to collect, to hunt for, has always been mushrooms. I really like finding critters that hide rather than chasing critters that run. So in order to be effective as a mushroom hunter, it turned out to be very helpful to learn a little bit about why they grow where they grow. And so that led me down the wormhole of mycology, and I became fascinated with the science in general and have followed the subject as a journalist ever since. Uh, fungal biopesticides work is not so dissimilar to the way other biocontrol organisms work. For example, when I was a little girl, my mother used to let ladybugs loose in her garden to reduce the aphid populations. Fungi can be used in that same way. It's just that we don't often think about fungi, certainly as gardeners, because fungi are the primary pathogens of plants. Most of us say you know, who grow gardens say, oh, fungi, no, <laughs> no, we don't want them. But actually many are friendly and certainly many are antagonists of insects, of other fungi. There are over 3 million species, some of them very gregarious in their interactions with other fungi or with pests in a garden. Others are very specific. One fungus attacks one kind of pest. 
So, for example, the species Trichodermus, they are used as a um, pathogen. They're pathogens of other fungi. So it'll help the plant survive a, an attack by a competitive or a pathogenic fungus. The other kind of biocontrol that is a kind of aggressive in its nature would be fungi that are used as biocontrol of insects. For example, um, Bavaria bassiana is a fungus that effectively can kill soft-bodied insects like aphids. The third type are the supportive fungi that support plants. So those type of fungi play a really important role in the overall health of the plant. Mycorrhizal fungi are fungi that attach to the roots, either to the exterior or even intercellularly, um, to the roots of plants. And then the fungus takes carbohydrates that the plant makes as a result of photosynthesis and trades or gives to the plant micronutrients, water that the plant needs but can't make itself. Additionally, there's the endophytic fungi. These are fungi that live between the cells of plants. All plants are thought to have endophytic fungi wriggling between their cells. What are they doing there? Well, there's been more and more research into this area showing that endophytic fungi provide stress tolerance to plants. So when the plant gets stressed out by drought or salt inundation or um, high temperatures, it produces particles that are harmful to its cells. It's not unlike us. We do the same thing. But um, we produce uh, chemicals that help suppress that destructive process. Plants do not. Plants shop that job out to the endophytic fungi living between their cells. So when the plant gets stressed out and starts to self-destruct, in essence, the endophytic fungi rush in and provide these antioxidant chemicals that helps the plant survive the day. And so these endophytes are really important in the field of study because they have agricultural implications in a warming world. I think the reason why it is not hugely widespread is because the learning curve about fungi in general is just slower. I mean, there are so many things about fungi that people didn't have a clue about 25 years ago. How important mycorrhizal fungi is, is in terms of carbon sequestration in the soil. You know, I have t-shirts older than this discovery. So certainly it's like the scientific community is becoming more and more engaged in mycology, which is fantastic. These organisms are very, very important in nature, super important to plants. And, you know, just because it's taken us a long time to develop the tools to actually see these things, certainly doesn't mean that they are less important than flora and fauna in a natural ecosystem. Eugenia Bohm. In the UK, regulations on making pesticides for gardeners, including biological pesticides like fungi, are very, very strict indeed for reasons of health and safety. 
And because fungi are potentially allergens, well, I should say fungal preparations are potentially allergens, it's not proved possible to develop fungi as pest control agents for use by home gardeners as yet, though that may come. So there's a few products on the UK market for professional growers where they're used in greenhouses, where the very exacting conditions of humidity and warmth can be provided. In the greenhouse industry, they're very valuable. For example, think of the herbs that you buy in supermarkets. Obviously, herbs are cut very fresh. It would be very difficult to use a chemical pesticide without leaving residues that no one would want to eat. So in those situations, funky biocontrols are very effective and valuable. But what about the more common types of biocontrol? Let's head back to Andy Salisbury as he explores how certain controls became popular with gardeners in the UK. These days, as gardeners, we know there are biological controls available to us for things like glasshouse whitefly, we can buy parasitoids, for red spider mite, we can buy predatory mites, and there are other parasitoids and mites available for a range of things. But how did that all start? It's a slightly different situation to these national schemes. I'm pleased to say the RHS had a big hand in developing these glasshouse and garden biocontrols. In the 1910s, the first full-time RHS entomologist, George Fox Wilson, noticed that glasshouse whitefly were being parasitised by a wasp called Incarsia parnosa. And he thought, wow, I wonder if this would work in our glasshouses here. And he actually trialled it in the glasshouses, made a few reports, then he got called away to the First World War. And when he came back, he tried to continue his trials back in, in the late 1910s and reported his findings. But as far as we're aware, that is the first time anybody's tried glasshouse biological control. In the 1920s, a different wasp was found by somebody else in Casia formosa, and that is the parasitoid wasp that is used to this day and gardeners can buy to control glasshouse whitefly. But for a long time, the place that was selling or providing these controls for the home gardener was the RHS. And we have records showing how many glasshouse whitefly parasitoids we were sending out to members of the society and the gardening public right the way through to the 1980s. Here at the RHS we continued that tradition and we have found biological controls can be incredibly useful, particularly about things like glasshouse whitefly. And the same goes for the parasites and predators of glasshouse red spider mite. We found them to be incredibly successful here at, um, at the RHS and again used in commercial production of our, our glasshouse crops and yet something the home gardeners can use in their own glasshouse too. But there are things you can do in your garden to encourage those natural enemies. There's lots of other things out there. There's, there's ground beetles. There's naturally occurring parasitoid wasps. There's ladybirds, which are, are naturally occurring too. Uh, and what can you do to encourage them? Well, the first thing I'd say is they need their prey. So accepting a few aphids on your plants, not reaching for the pesticide bottle, just realising your plants might be a bit nibbled, you know, accepting part of that. And the parasitoids and the predators will come. If they have something to eat, they will come. And hopefully you'll achieve that natural balance. So things won't be decimated, but you will have a few old leaves and there'll be a few aphids around. And lots of flowers, a wide range of flowers, because a lot of the adults of some of these predators are also pollinators. So we've got 250 species of hoverfly in the UK. Most of them are pollinators as adults. About half of them have predatory larvae. And these maggot-like larvae are voracious predators of aphids. Uh, are parasitoid wasps. They need a bit of a nectar feed as an adult. So these are things which will lay their eggs inside other insects and larvae develop inside them. So this includes, you know, they'll, they'll help reduce caterpillar problems and other insect problems as well. So you get less damage that way. So 
growing a wide range of plants, accepting a bit of damage and lots of flowers. You know, your garden will be buzzing with life and not all of it will be eating your plants and there'll be hopefully that natural balance. That's all we have time for today. But if you're interested in learning more about anything in this programme, just visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. But for now, I'll leave you with a final message from our King of Bugs, Andy. Biocontrols, when they work well, can be absolutely brilliant. They can save time, they can uh, continue to persevere. And of course, you're not using pesticides. Pesticides and bumblebees don't mix. But the biocontrols give really good control of some of the problems. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.